This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 261, and we are recording on December 15th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jeff O'Neill, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Welcome! What's going on? Hi. Um, so Jen is obviously not here. Jeff is not Jen. Jen is on vacation, which is, you know, I'm jealous. I'm extremely jealous. But for y'all who, I guess people don't, maybe don't know who you are, it's been, have you ever been on the show? I was on with Jen. I covered for right. you not too long ago, yeah. which because it's 2020 might have been six years yes. ago or three months. A little it's hard, hard to, to know. know, but I've been on before. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, if you are listening for the first time, Jeff is our CEO and co-host of the Book Riot podcast, where they talk about news mm-hmm. and interesting things happening in the world of books and reading. I don't want to call it a gossip show, but sometimes I like to think that it's a gossip show because that's fun. Look, is it insidery <laughs> industry? Like the line between that and gossip is a little rough, true. you know, to some time. But it's the inner workings of, I mean, frankly, maybe the most cloistered of our major like medias mm. when it comes to the actual industry. So, uh, music and movies and TV have their business on Front Street all the time. And where with books, we really don't. And sports too or something. And video games increasingly is um, uh, a soap opera. But Books is a little, you know, we don't even tell you how many books are sold in a week. We can't even, you can't even figure out what, what the best-selling book was or how much money things made. So, Whereas movie people are very happy to tell you that. Yeah, I was reading a thing recently about how that was kind of a big deal for making movies like a weekly event so that people could keep score, like sports, oh. um, which is interesting. I think it's an interesting way of thinking about it. We've long wondered about how to cover books like sports and could you do for books what ESPN did for sports mm-hmm. in the 80s, which people don't realize now when there's like nine wall-to-wall sports all the time TV shows that you could watch highlights once a week on Saturday night. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's so hard to remember now. But uh, anyway, yeah. So Rebecca and I are interested, and I think you are too. You've been on that show too, mm-hmm. just like the inner workings of this business of books. And as someone who studied like the English side for a long time, scandalously little attention paid to the actual like capitalist bit, which turns out is relatively important for America and how America works. Well, and well. books are subject to that too. <laughs> for better or for ill. And like the, the industry side of all of these stories I find extremely fascinating. And so this is an outgrowth of that that interest. And we're still outsiders, but we're interested. We're interested outsiders mm-hmm. um, in that regard. So that's enough of a plug for the show. You, you shouldn't have got teed me up for that. I could talk for days. <laughs> <laughs> Go listen to the show, y'all. All right. So for those of you who are new, how the show works is obviously, as I said, this is a show for personalized reading recommendations. So you can send those to us via email at getbookedatbookriot.com. And they can be for you or your book club or if you're looking for a gift for someone, doesn't matter. Uh, we also have a form in the show notes uh, um, for the posts on the site. You can leave your question there. If your question is time sensitive, please put that in the subject line if you're using the email or just put it in big letters in the first line if you use the form so that we will get to it on time. We might email you back if we've already answered your uh, question after 260 episodes, we've answered quite a few, though, I, shockingly, you still have niches we have yet to explore. <laughs> the indefig- indefigatable? What, I never say that word right. 
No one can say right. it right. It's the pronunciation itself is indefatigable. So. There you go. Unconquerable curiosity of Unconquerable. our audience. I just say different things. That's fine. Okay, we have one piece of feedback today from Angie for the questioner who was looking for books for their dad, who was a retired anesthesi- anesthesiologist who liked plants. Amy Stewart wrote two books about plants, one of the dangerous ones called Wicked Plants and one about plants used in drinks called The Drunken Botanist, and both are very interesting. I have read The Drunken Botanist. It is very interesting. You're right. If you listen to them on audio, uh, see, Angie says, I listen to them on audio, but I understand the physical texts have lovely illustrations. All right, I'm going to read our first question here, and then we will hear from our first sponsor, and away we'll go. Quinn says, I'm looking for a book for a friend. She loves nonfiction books, but that's not my area of expertise. She likes two types, books that give advice on how to improve your life. Some of her favorites include Atomic Habits, Your Life for Your Money, Digital Minimalism, 101 Ways to Go Zero Waste, and books that widen your perspective on the world through the lens of others. Favorites include Becoming, This Is Going to Hurt, and I Am Malala. All right, before we get to that, let's hear from our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Wife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Disney Books. Do y'all like Caribbean mythology? What's more, a thriller inspired by Caribbean mythology? If you do, I got something for you. A must-read thriller that draws from the darkest corners of Caribbean mythology from acclaimed author Sarah Das, who crafts a chilling tale of magic, murder, and how far we'll go to protect what's ours. It's perfect for fans of Angeline Bully and Tiffany D. Jackson. So, unlike other people on the small island of St. Virgil, Selena Da Silva does not believe in magic. She has a logical mind. She likes botany. She wants to study pharmacology. But then her mother gets sick and she's tethered to the island and she has to make money. So what does she do? She cons a couple gullible tourists with these useless talismans and phony protection rituals. But then one of the tourists ends up dead and at the center of a strange string of murders. And the truth Selena has been denying can no longer be avoided. There is evil lurking in the forest that surrounds St. Virgil. Now to find out what that evil is, make sure to pick up It Waits in the Forest by Sarah Das. And thanks again to Disney Books for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so books on how to improve your life slash books that widen your perspective. Would you like to go first, Jeff? Sure. I picked Grit by Angela Duckworth. And again, this book is now well known. And there's a good chance, Quinn, that you you maybe have already read this book or heard about it. But like many ideas that take off, people forget the substrate upon which they're they're built. And I think, Amanda, you and I may have talked about this, or I may have heard you mention this before, that 
the idea of grit and now the, the conventional wisdom or the mainstream understanding, I think, is not right for what mm. Angela Duckworth is really doing uh, with this book. Grit itself has become memed. It's very easy to like think you know what you know because you know what grit means, and you're thinking, I don't know, uh, a Charles Portis novel. You're looking at John Wayne on a on, on a raft, um, <laughs> you know, protecting someone like true grit rather than regular grit. But I think it's shockingly more complicated than that. I think this is one of those books too that. We sometimes talk about on the on the other podcast. Uh, Rebecca and I both like books like this. There are some books that are like a good long article dressed up to be two hundred and forty eight pages, so you can sell it in hardcover at, at bookstores and airports. When we went on air, in airports, and there's a lot of fluff. But this one actually, I think, withstands a book length treatment because there is more nuance about what commitment means, about about doing hard things over time and getting feedback. And it's not just gritting your teeth and keep, you know, bashing your head against the wall. In fact, that's that's an anti-pattern. So I think it's really important to understand that difference. And I found it very readable. I did it on audio and then I read it later in paper because I wanted to do underlining and take some notes. I think it's in this year of all years, some understanding of what resilience might be, what dedication mm. might be, what what getting better over time looks like. You know, because p- some people think of gritting your teeth as like, you know, you're, you don't have any anesthetic and you're having a dental operation in the old <laughs> West and you just got to, you know, you're just sort of burying it. But that's not what this is about. This is actually about getting better um, and improving. And that's, I think, implied in the titles. It's not always pleasant, but it's not necessarily painful and reactive. So Grit by Angela Duckworth, it's already gone round the bend of catching fire and now becoming calcified and misunderstood. And it's worth returning to it with fresh eyes, I think. Does that resonate with you all, Amanda? Do I get, do you think I'm right about that? Yeah, I mean, it's been a while since I read it, mm. but yeah, it is kind of doing the misunderstood, relevant again. I think the conversations around burnout and and, yeah. and all of that and like rethinking, especially this year, how we work has, I think, made people look at it a little askance, yes, but right, yeah, right, I feel right. like it's people who haven't actually read it. <laughs> I think so too. I think if you read the book, you will be like, well, that's not really right if you hear people bagging on mm-hmm. grit, as opposed yeah. to something like... Lean in, which I think ultimately when we came back around, like, oh yeah, maybe, maybe we no, missed some still stuff. Bad. <laughs> yeah, you know, so it can go. All criticism can work, but sometimes some subtlety is is useful too. Yeah. All right, I picked How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell. Um, a lot of your friends' favorite books in this kind of milieu are also mine. I loved Atomic Habits. Digital minimalism is great, even though that author makes me kind of stabby a little bit. <laughs> but Jenny O'Dell is a great alternative or um, maybe not alternative, read along with those sorts of books. How to Do Nothing. The subtitle is Resisting the Attention Economy. And it's a misleading title, right? Like you're, go- you're going to go into this book as I did thinking, oh, this is a book about how to like get off Facebook or how to not spend so much time on my phone when my kids are trying to get my attention. And it is not that at all. It is a kind of philosophical and artistic thesis about technology, uh, social media, capitalism, bioregionalism, performance art. It's about a million different things. Jenny O'Dell lives in Silicon Valley. She's surrounded by all of these, um, you know, big tech companies and is herself very resistant to the way that they commodify our attention and commodify our personalities, make people into tiny little brands so that we perform for likes and all this kind of thing. And so what she's really encouraging you to do is become more uh, familiar with your area's biodiversity. Like she, in order Mm. to resist being part of the attention economy, gets super, super into bird watching, which I also am super, super into bird watching. So that made me feel really nice. And like I was doing some small act of resistance by looking at a cardinal, which when I'm actually looking at the cardinal does not feel like an act of resistance at all. Mm. But apparently it is. That's great. Free cookies for me. Um, And she also talks a lot about um, art, the making of art and the consuming of art as an alternative to 
I don't even want to know if I want to call it an alternative. She's really talking about it as resistance, as like purposeful political. Not when you're doing these things, you're not on Facebook. When you're when you're investing in the climate, your local climate, your local flora, fauna, all of that kind of. When you get into bird watching, when you learn how to hike all the trails around your area, and you get really familiar with your local community. And then eventually, not just the birds and the squirrels, but like maybe the people who live there, you know, that is really antithetical to the the ways that social media splits our attention. So I think that it takes something like digital minimalism or atomic habits, which also deals with like atomic habits also deals a little bit with how we interact with our phones and puts them in a more political kind of almost professorial academic viewpoint um which i found actually pretty helpful because the like tech bro atomic habit way of speaking irritates me even though i appreciate the advice and i like those books and i read them after a while i'm like oh just talk differently (laughs) like have a a deeper thought about this uh, other than just like make your willpower better which sometimes you know is isn't worth it but reframing it as an act of political investment in your individuality is something that can't be commodified, I think, um, was super helpful for my brain. So that's How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell. Can I ask you a question about that? Yeah. I've, I've been circling this one for a long time. It sounds like one thing you like about it is, you know, the atomic habits, uh, digital minimalism is like, do less so you can do more, mm-hmm. right? So be more, do all these other unproductive things so you can make more widgets as a knowledge worker, right? Make more knowledge worker. Whereas it sounds like with O'Dell, it's what if there's an alternate way of understanding the value of your life, really? It's like, don't don't right. resist or don't put down your phone so you can pick up your spreadsheet, right? Or something like that. Right. And she um, she is biracial. She's Filipino, which I am mm. also. She, and she doesn't like atomic habits and digital minimalism. A lot of these guys who are writing about these be less productive so you can be more productive kind of things completely ignore intersections of like race or mm. gender. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't ignore him. She's very much talking about them. And when you bring that kind of stuff in, you know, when you bring in a more nuanced perspective of a thing, it's automatically going to be more interesting or should be. <laughs> yeah, no, I I definitely want to read it. And, and it, it maybe would help me articulate that thing I feel where, you know, my, my kids and I and my partner, Michelle, we try to take a morning and afternoon walk together as one of the luxuries of this time is, you know, we have more fluidity to our time. And there's a thing that happens when we're out on our walk and we don't take our phones and we're looking at stuff. And I haven't yeah. been able to articulate why it's so great or why yeah. it's so useful or why it feels so... Like it's just it's just different than me sitting on my computer like podcasting about books about this. Like it's it's a fundamentally different thing, and it's something other than exercise. It's something other than mindfulness, and I haven't been able to articulate it. So I, I, this seems like again, I've known I need to do this for a while. I kind of been turned off by the title, but I think what you mm. just said about don't let that sort of fool you. Yeah, it's not. I don't think it's really about how to do nothing. It's it's like how to do literally nothing. Um, it's yeah, how to do yeah. better thing, better things. Well, there's this like this creative romanticism about laying on your chaise lounge in the 19th century, right? Mm-hmm. That that's not what I'm looking for, but it, it doesn't sound like this is that at all. So no, I mean I've heard a couple people compare it to Thoreau in as yeah. much as it's like go outside, but that's really where the similarities stop, in my opinion. And I'm one of those people that's a positive association. Uh, like, well. I like Thoreau. You know, <laughs> take it with a grain of salt like anything. But anyway. All right. Sorry. I, I, I derailed this. Right. Let's, let's go. All right. Question two is from Melissa who says, after spending a few years as a librarian, I feel that books are becoming more of a commodity I trade in than things that bring me joy. Melissa, that is relatable. Mm-hmm. I'm wishing for that amazing experience of reading a knock your socks off good book for the first time. I really need a book that I can find completely immersive, full of interesting, complex characters who have wonderful adventures. 
Some of my favorite books are The Three Musketeers, Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, Anne of Green Gables, Harry Potter. She lists a whole bunch more. Um, I tried The Magicians and it wasn't for me. And I don't particularly care for thrillers or horror. Other than that, I'm open to anything that is astonishingly good. Jeff, what do you have? I didn't have a great pick. I didn't feel like uh, – so I, so I, as I do sometimes in direct recommendations, I throw away the comps. I can get lost in comps. Do you find that with, with Amanda, you guys, when you do this? Are you like – do you try to go back to the pros? Because I'll get too fixated on what, what's the – I know it's like Anna Green Gable. So I went back up to <laughs> immersive, interesting, complex characters. I think Wonderful Adventures may not be right for my pick, which is The Water Dancer by Don Niasi <laughs> Coach. There's certainly adventures. Boy, adventures really feels like tokenizing and trivializing what actually happens. It's a story set during slavery where the, I don't want to give away too much. It's, it's, it's light, speculative fiction, magical realism, where one of the characters has a power. And over the course of time, it becomes useful as a mode of resistance. And one of the characters he meets is Harriet Tubman, who also has this power. And sort of translating Harriet Tubman's experience of the Underground Railroad and liberating slaves and getting them to the North as like kind of a superpower, actually making it an actual kind of a superpower, but it's a superpower that's ancestral and embedded and seemingly inherited. And you don't wear a cape or you don't have to do a magic enchantment, but it's it's much more in the I guess we'll get to the beloved vein um to spoil a man one of Amanda's picks coming up, but it's <laughs> there's something that's possible outside of the normal world. And that is embedded into a story about slavery, about escape, um, and everything that goes along with it. I don't think it's a perfect novel by any stretch of the imagination. Rebecca and I did a whole podcast episode. Maybe we can put that in the show notes, Amanda. So if you want to hear more about if you've read it or after you read this, go take a look at it. But it is very, very enveloping world building. And the stakes are super high. And you feel very close to the characters. And I found it, I found it quite profound and is excited to see what Coates is going to do in fiction in the future. So that's The Water Dancer by Taniasi Coates. Came out, God, last year? Is that last possible? Year. Yeah, last year. <laughs> um, so probably in paperback now, if you want to go pick that up. Time is, in fact, moving. Yeah, it is. So there's that's me. I picked The Wrong Stars by Tim Pratt, which is a, like the heavy sci-fi, kind of in the Becky Chambers vein. It's like cozy. Mm. I got stuck on The Three Musketeers in your list of comps here. And so I went for something that has like a found family rompy adventure that's like super fun and very addictive to read. I could not stop reading this book. It is so much fun. So it's about a crew in space because all of these books are about crews in space, right? Um, on the White Raven, they run freight and they do salvage for this huge trans, uh, trans, what's it called? Transgalactic, something like that corporation that like, you know, runs the galaxy for all living creatures. And it's a ragtag crew. There's five members and the captain. Can you have non-ragtag non crews in no, space? It's not, you can't. It's, it's, it's impossible. Actually, it's illegal. I'm pretty sure <laughs> that it's illegal. You, there is no regular tag crews. They all must be ragtag. No, it's yeah. only ra It's only tags made of rags. Yeah. And so Callie is the captain. And they encounter a very old, like centuries old ship that's out floating light years away from anything that uh, anywhere from where it should be. And they, you know, do the scans or whatever and discover that this was a generation ship that Earth, that left Earth hundreds of years ago with the intention of finding new planets for humanity to populate. The only problem is, while it was in transit, humanity had contact with another alien species that gave us the technology to travel, like, wormholes and whatnot. So, mm. you know... This ship was no longer needed and has just been on its way for hundreds and hundreds of years for really no reason. So they get on the ship uh, and they wake up the one remaining person who is still there. 
And she wakes up with this horror story about how her ship encountered an alien species. And, uh, you know, they're all probably dead. Like, it was not a great encounter. And so she needs to go warn humanity. And, of course, Callie and the rest of the crew are like, ooh, hate to tell you. But, like, that's already happened? You know, like, Mm. your whole life's mission is, like, not necessary. Also, if you're talking about aliens, we already know they're not that bad. So, like, maybe you dreamt that horrible experience. Um, because humanity has encountered a, a species of aliens. They're called the liars because they ha- have a weird communication style where they're unable to tell the truth ever. But they are great trading partners for for like new technology. So humanity has decided to ignore that. And this woman who is awoken from the ship is like, no, no, different species. We're all going to die. And then hence the romp begins of like, oh, crap, uh. well, let's go save humanity. This sounds really, you know, high stakes. <laughs> and it is high stakes, it turns out. And so this, of course, you know, Tale as old as time, like ragtag group of musketeers for all intents and purposes, go out to save the planet and, and all of the planets, actually, and all of humanity from what might be a fever dream that this 2000 year old person has had or might be a giant existential threat to every living thing that exists. It's like super fun. It sounds real heavy, but it's not. It's m- lots of fun. That sounds very stressful. It's Why so is stressful. it true if they save everyone? God, another alien species. Maybe yeah. they're going to destroy us all. It's very stressful, uh, but you know, good omens also stressful. End of the world, and she liked that, so I think it'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, it sounds fun though. I actually kind of like that. I, I, I like that to it idea. On audio, which I can't tell if listening to it on audio made it less stressful mm. or or more, because you know you're forced to turn it off no matter how stressful the moment is. You can't get caught up in that. Like, did you say this was YA or not? You, no, no, it's not. No, no, no okay, no. okay. Uh, not that I care. I just was getting, uh, for some reason, I thought it was YA for a second, which is not good or bad, just wasn't clear. All right. So our next question is from Erica, who says, I'm a deeply romantic person, and it seems that the only thing I've been reading lately are books, romantic books, where the main characters end up together. I want to mix things up, and I was hoping that you could recommend a realistic book about a couple breaking up. I want a book where the couple realizes they're not right for each other. If you can't find a book like that, because I couldn't, I just want a book that will give me a good cry. I want a book that's emotional, relatable, and will tug the reader's heartstrings. Books I have read that are kind of like what I want, that I liked are It Ends With Us, All the Bright Places, and All the Ugly and Wonderful Things. Okay, Jeff, what you got? I I struggle with this, and I had something else initially which I took out because I had a brainwave last night. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm picking Our Souls at Night by Kent Haruf, which... Ken Ruff uh, passed away, I think, last year, year before. Again, with time, it's hard to tell. But he was a literary fiction writer, but a really regional writer, really about the western part of Colorado. Um, his breakout book was called Eventide, so that's probably the one that people have read if they've heard of it. Our Souls at Night is a book about two old people living in a small town in western Colorado. And, you know, they're towards the end of their lives, and they've had their lives, and they've had partners come and go. Um, I don't want to, again, I, I hate to spoil stuff. So it's always, <laughs> I always am cognizant of that. But basically they find each other late and they do a courtship thing. And I guess inherently the question is asking for the spoiler, which is the anti happily ever after, which is mm-hmm. no, they don't end up together. I, I eliminated choices where someone dies because that's not really what this person seems to be asking for, right? That, that they're not end up together because of like uh, misaligned stars or something like that. There was a certain amount of volition into like, we care about each other. There's a romance, but ultimately it doesn't work out and working out is not cancer or getting shot or something like that. And these, these two people here decide, do they decide, does life happen to them? They, they make choices. Let's put it that way. That forecloses the possibility of them being together, even though if things were different, I think they would like to be together. So does that sound like it qualifies? I mean, it's very beautiful. It's very spare. I find it very, very moving. 
Um, there is an adaptation with Sissy Spacek and Robert Redford that's on Netflix. You can watch. I was really excited to see that. I didn't think it was as good as the book, not because I think movies are always worse, just whatever it was, the special sauce, the vibe that Ruth <laughs> captured in the book didn't translate for whatever reason onto screen, but it's a slight book. I found it very moving. I find it very thoughtful. One of my favorite subgenres I've called old men waiting to die, which is old men, <laughs> old men looking back on their life and sort of taking stock and, and at the very best ones, trying to figure out if it's too late to, to change the narrative, to change the stock taking. And this falls into that category. I put it, you know, Out Stealing Horses by Per Pedersen, um, some of the late Roth, that's okay. In that regard, I really find that interesting. And this does a good job, I think, with the, the man and the woman's perspective here. And it's tender, and it's thoughtful, and it's sad, and it's hopeful. And if you're not choking up a little bit by the end, well, gosh darn it, I'm the wrong person to recommend books for you. <laughs> so that's uh, Our Souls at Night by Kent Hruff. Okay, I picked Fleischman is in Trouble by Taffy Broadusser-Ackner, which is an extremely controversial book that I have found no one with a neutral opinion who has read it, either love it or hate it. This had a moment, right? This had a moment it last did, year and the, and the year moment before. was like, the, the moment was a giant internet fight about whether or not the book <laughs> is any good. <laughs> and I loved it, obviously, because I'm recommending it. So it was uh, nominated for the National Book Award yeah. in 2019. Big I picked glow it up, up in 2020. For that. Jeez, what yeah. a, what a and thing. And then, yeah, in 2020, it was longlisted for the Women's Prize, which is why I read it, because I read the long list every year uh, of the Women's Prize. And I hadn't really heard anything about it. I try not to read the, re the synopses or the reviews. I try to go into those books blind mm -hmm. as much as I possibly can. So I had no idea what I was getting into. I read it, loved it, then went back and read all the reviews and was like, oh, <laughs> I did not realize that I had stepped in like a landmine, but it is banana. So if you read Fates and Furies, it's got a similar structure to that, the Lauren Groff, mm. where it opens with Toby's perspective uh, for the first half, who is the husband. And then in the second half, you get the wife's perspective. Or, well, X, they are newly divorced. Toby is a liver specialist. He's a doctor in New York. He is 41, and he and his wife have just split up. He has his kids every other weekend. He is on a marathon, is probably the more accurate word, of uh, Tinder dates, basically. And so he's like enjoying his freedom or whatever. Uh, and then his wife, his ex-wife, goes missing. She stops answering texts. She stops answering the phone. She's not in her apartment, nothing. And he cannot, and he's trying to like give, the, it's her time to take the kids back. Um, and, and she is just gone. So he's trying to protect his kids from you know, knowing that his their mother is like missing. He doesn't know if he's supposed to call the police. He doesn't know what to do. So you're like with him as he's trying to figure out how to navigate this situation. Also, um, you know, he's like thinking back on how, why his marriage failed. His wife is very financially successful, way more than he is, even as a, you know, hmm. specialist, a doctor in Manhattan. Um, she's much more financially successful than him. And it caused a lot of problems in his marriage. He feels like she was a social climber and was make, like putting all this pressure on him to leave his practice and get into like hospital administration and all this crap he didn't want to do. So he's like, you know, a 41-year-old dude recently divorced. Like mm, the internet didn't like him. I get it. And then so you are fed a narrative about his wife that's very colored by his experience. And then in the second half, you get her narrative. And it is, unsurprisingly, extremely different <laughs> from what he thought was happening in his marriage. Mostly, you know, his obtuseness completely hid from him 
what his wife was dealing with and going through. And the way that, you know, her social climbing is painted in her perspective, it's just really, really fascinating. And I think really true to life, you know, of how two people living in the same house in a relationship together can have two completely different experiences and then come together later and be like, no, this is what happened. No, this is what happened and have no idea what the other person is really talking about. So, yeah, it's like part mystery. It's got a little bit of that where'd you go Bernadette thing going on where the woman Mm. just like gets freaking tired of everyone in her life and just disappears for a while because she wants to because screw all of you so it's got a little bit of that it's really really funny i mean i will you know this is like rich manhattan people and their emotional problems which i know a lot of people cannot get through but i like old old men nearing death contemplating Mm -hmm. whether or not they still have time this is my catnip like rich people (laughs) and their problems i just i love it i just love it so it's so unrelatable and like what is wrong with you (laughs) but it's great to read it's very gossipy juicy kind of stuff But yeah, they definitely are not right for each other and never, ever, ever, we are never, ever Taylor Swift getting back together. So that's Fleischman is in Trouble by Taffy Brodeser-Ackner. Everyone in that book is horrible and I love it so much. All right. Our next question is from Sarah Kay who says, I'm needing recommendations for my eight-year-old niece. She's a fan of the Lunch Lady series and I want to get her some similar books for Christmas, but I have no idea what to get. She isn't the biggest reader, so I want to encourage her, but I'm lost. She's a tomboy who loves video games, specifically Fortnite. Horses and The Sims. She's also a strong reader, so age range is flexible. Okay, Jeff. Uh, again, I, I jettisoned the direct comp and went down to the pros about video games, horses, Sims, reader. So here, this is a lot of projection here, Sarah Kay. Um, I have a daughter who's eight. Doesn't fit your description ne- neatly, but I also have a son turning eight and turning t- 10 next year. And I want to get them my recommendation. And I'm, they're almost ready. So bear that in mind. It's Paper Girls by Brian K. Vong, illustrated by Cliff Chang, which is a series of comic books that's now over. And you can get them in three very beautiful hardcover deluxe editions. Don't worry, I've looked very carefully at all of these, and we'll be buying them at some point. You can get the first one. It's like 30 bucks in hardcover. Make a wonderful gift to open. I'm not sure if that's what you're looking for. I guess it is for Christmas, right? I hope it's not too mm-hmm. late. The story here, it's a graphic novel, I think I said, but it's comics, but now, again... You bind up enough comics, you have a graphic novel. That's what happened here. The series is over. So those of you who listen to the other show know that it passes O'Neill's razor. We know what happens. You can start <laughs> it and finish it. You have to wait for everything else that's coming out. But it's the story of four 12-year-olds who have a paper route set in 1988, uh, when I was 10, actually. So I would have been around their age when, when this was coming out. I'd never really thought about that before. Anyway, immaterial <laughs> here. It's Halloween night, and stuff happens. Uh, turns out there's a lot of time travel and monsters and interdimensional terror. It is Spielbergian in that sense of being on the cusp of adulthood, having one foot in childhood and one foot in adulthood, and having something really strange happen and being terrified and wonderful and thinking it's adventure and also a calamity. That vibe I will do forever, I've decided, whether it's E.T. or Stranger Things <laughs> or any of those things. I, I really like that. And now that my kids are getting old enough to have a little bit of double consciousness about childhood and adulthood, about the wider world and their particular like love of horses and sims, I find stra- that tension extremely electrifying. And this one, it's about saving the universe and everything, but also about the relationship of, among these four girls um, and about their lives together and who they are. And I just think it's fantastic. And I think if she's not the biggest reader, the graphic, the art is wonderful and evocative and electrifying in terms of its its palette. Uh, Cliff Chang does really an amazing job of making it feel light and dark, um, terrifying and beautiful, exciting and dangerous. It makes a wonderful gift. And so, I, and 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 it kind of the Fortnite color palette actually sort of reminds me 
of the Paper Girls <laughs> color palette. I don't know if that's yeah. right or not, but um, that's my pick. And it might be a little bit young, maybe next year. I don't know. It's up, it's up to you. Uh, I think so. But Fortnite, look, Fortnite is murdering people with space guns. If you're mm-hmm. used to that every day, then I don't know that Paper Girls is out of, out of range. Amanda, tell me if I'm wrong about this. No, no, no. I think it's fine. My kids are okay. also in the Fortnite now. It's fine. Okay. Would you would you have them read Paper Girls? They're the same age as my oldest son, so I, I don't know. Have you, oh, yeah. Have you thought about that? Okay. Cool. That's me. Paper Girls, but written by Brian K. Vong and illustrated by Cliff Chang. Okay. I picked The School is Alive, which is the first book in the Erie Elementary series by Jack Schabert, uh, illustrated by Sam Ricks. There are several books in this series, and I picked it because I kind of mashed up the Lunch Lady series and Fortnite in my head to, to mm. get to this. Um, and my kids loved it. They are going to be 10 in March, and they read this a year ago, so they would have been eight, same age as your niece. Um, and so this is exactly what it sounds like. It's about a little boy named Sam who figures out that his elementary school is not is like maybe haunted but maybe also like sentient and alive and a little bit evil he figures this out on his first day when he's assigned to be the school hall monitor um and he decides you know that he's got to defend all of his friends and his fellow students and classmates and teachers from the the school that wants to eat them alive um and he you know doesn't know if like he can do it himself so he recruits two of his best friends to help him and they have a class play that's going up and he has to stop the school before it you know consumes everyone who comes in to watch the class the class play including their parents and their siblings and all of their family friends and all of that and so every book in this series is another you know adventure that sam and his friends go on to defend themselves and and their loved ones from their haunted creepy school so it's not like i will tell you that my son Atticus is very sensitive to scary mm. anything that seems like it's going to be spooky. He does not like it. And he was totally fine with this series. So it's not um, horror by any means. You know, it's it's got a spooky premise, but it's very playful and fun. And, um, you know, if your your niece is um, not a bit, you said she's not a big reader, but a strong reader. And I think that this is a good pick for that because it, the books are short, but they're not dumbed down in any kind of way. Like any... I mean, they have illustrations and stuff, but that's pretty common for for books of that that reading level. Uh, but they they're you know less than a hundred pages. So if she's not enthusiastic about reading, I think it would be a good kind of in. So that's uh, the School is Alive by Jack Chabert and uh, Sam Ricks. Okay, time for our next sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. 
So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone. But, you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, she wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now, he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Okay, question five is from Kristen, who says, I've read Tracks and Future Home of the Living God, both by Louise Erdrich, and loved not only the skillful writing, but how she explores elements of indigenous culture and spirituality, the effect of colonization, and the search or striving to maintain identity. I'm already participating in the hashtag Erdrich Medicine Read Along on Instagram, and will be trying to read her other books too. Do you have any more suggestions for great books by indigenous authors from anywhere in the world? Please know Alexi. Also, I know I'm in the minority here, but I didn't care for most of the prose of Tommy Orange. Okay, Jeff, what you got? Yeah, it's hard to know. Um, it sounds like maybe you would have already encountered um, Ceremony by Leslie Marmon Silco, which is my pick. But if not, I have to recommend it because mm. it sounds like this would be... <sighs> she... <laughs> I mean... If she wants to know about indigenous American authors, Silco for a long time was the center. I think maybe Erdrich has taken over that spot now. Uh, you know, this book came out originally in 1977, so it's not as al Quran as, you know, whatever's going on. You know, Erdrich is still out there and there's younger writers coming up like Tommy Orange. So it's good. They're more than one name. That's really good. At the time, ceremony was it. I mean, Ceremony was the, it's hard to even think of an, an, an analogy now in the age of we need diverse books where there's multiple choices, really still underrepresented, but underrepresented, but still many more choices. It got a deluxe edition from Penguin, which I think is the one you can find in print now, uh, later with a, with an intro, introduction by Larry McMurtry. Not that that matters, but it tells you kind of the central, the, the modern canonization of Ceremony is real. Her subsequent books didn't pick up in the same way. It happens sometimes. Didn't really become a household names like some other people did and then didn't because of things they may or may not have done. Leave that there for the moment. But the work remains magnetic and incandescent. It's the story of a member of the Pueblo tribe who goes to World War II, is in a Japanese prison camp, then comes back and finds it very difficult to reintegrate. And as a way of coming to terms with hap what's happened to him, what's happened to his life, how he fits in with his his tribe is to, you know, study the ancestors, study the past, and go through the, the ceremony of the title, not a particular one, but the ceremony of reminding himself, reinvesting um, in the traditions out of which he comes. And to, it's really wonderful in, in all the ways it's going to be. It's restorative, it's healing, it's ultimately hopeful, even in the midst of the many terrors visit upon Native peoples in America and around the world, and the terror within that that this particular character goes through of basically post-traumatic stress disorder individually, but then also reckoning with a sort of a cultural 
post-traumatic stress disorder. That's an on, it's not post-traumatic stress. It's like ongoing traumatic stress, I guess, is one way of thinking about it. But a, but a classic, an almost instant classic when it came out. And I think now underread, probably, all things considered. So I'm, I'm glad to have a chance to talk about it for a minute. And I hope if you haven't checked it out that you will. Um, and I hope some others do because I think it's one where maybe due to be re, I mean, God, the Penguin Classic Edition came out in 2006, so that's almost 15 years ago now. So maybe we need a double classics re <laughs> I don't know what to do with it at this point, but please go out and read it. It's not very long, 270 pages. This is something I care about more as I get older. Yeah, are you, same. are you recommending a 480 page book or a 270 page book? I think you will find this really, really moving. And all the all the things that you're looking for, really, I couldn't recommend this more. A very, frankly, a very easy pick for me. Um, and I hope it worked out for this particular request. That's a Ceremony by Leslie Marmon Silk. I went a little further afield and picked The Yield by Tara June Winch. Tara June Winch is an Australian author from the Waradjuri people. And this has a lot of trigger wordings, child mm. sexual abuse and racism being the most prominent. I... It's won a lot of awards, specifically a lot of Australian awards, and I'm a little bummed that it's not gotten a bigger audience in the States, but I think that's mostly because it came out in June of this year in the middle of, you know, all of this. So it's not like she could go do a tour or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so please, everybody go <laughs> go pick it up. Um, half of this book is in the form of a dictionary, and I know I can feel, I can feel it. Y'all out there being like, I'm not going to read a dictionary, Amanda. Yes, you are. You are going to read the dictionary and you're going to like it. So it's about an old man named Albert. His, uh, he's cool. He goes by Poppy, uh, gone to Windy. He has lived his entire life on uh, the Morumbi River um, where he grew up. And he is very determined to make a dictionary of the language of his people to pass on to his children and, and their children. So you've got his perspective as he's writing this dictionary. And then his granddaughter, August, lives in the UK uh, and has come home after her grandfather has died for his funeral. And so, you know, she hasn't been home in a decade because her her twin sister went missing uh, when they were children, was never found. And uh, she's like kind of, you know, running from that grief and also the grief of well, everything that's happened to her family and her people, racism, this awful situation. And so she comes back after her grandfather dies um, to kind of like, you know, help her grandmother get the house sorted and um, be with her family and then finds out that the house and in fact, most of the town is being repossessed by a mining company or being possessed by a mining company that's come into town and is going to raise the whole thing and mine for some, I don't know, tin, I think it was. Um, and so she has, she just like something snaps in her and she decides that she's not gonna let that happen. Like so much has happened to her family, so much has happened to her people, uh, that she's just not going to let them remove her grandmother from the place that she's lived her whole life. So she goes on this like quest to try to find a way to save this house from the mining company. And so you go back and forth between her perspective, the perspective of her grandfather who has died when the book opens, uh, but it's you know, his present day as he's writing this dictionary and the, the, the way that he translates the words from his language into English and the feelings that they evoke. It's just, I mean, it's heartbreaking. It's hmm. heartbreaking. Like, it, it, uh, <laughs> I don't even have, I don't have, I'm talking about a dictionary and I don't have words, which I feel like is ironic, but I don't know. It's heartbreaking. And then you also get the perspective of a priest or preacher. I always get the denominations confused about which one calls which, which pastor, whatever, from the early 20th century who runs a 
like a home for indigenous children who've been stolen from their families and are being raised by the church, right? Mm-hmm. And his ideas, uh, and Poppy, you know, who's writing the dictionary, grew up in this home. And his his letters that he's writing, it's, you know, during World War II, um, back to his home country, he's from Germany, talking about the, the things that he is doing in this house for these kids that he thinks is um, helpful to them. And in the ways in which they're actually like excruciatingly destructive and awful. It's just, you know, it's not an easy read, right? Like it's just not, it's not easy, which might be another reason why it did not, why it's not getting more fanfare in 2020 where nothing is easy, but it's beautiful. It's so Mm. beautiful and just a punch to the gut. I don't know, like on a sentence level, you know, it's one of those things where you're like, oh, if I read another one of these sentences, I will no longer be able to breathe. That's cool. But it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful experience to read. So that's The Yield by Terry June Winch. Let me stop going on about it (laughs) okay our next question is from ocean who says in all of my surveying of literature i have found no equal to the monumental cormac mccarthy even angela carter or bruno schultz draw dropping as they are cannot touch his this phrase i love it evocation of the wondrously dark intestinality of the world what i love that so much i'm not attached to his southern gothic context in any genre whatsoever can you point me to another writer who strings words together like him jeff do you have dark intestinality uh yeah you know (laughs) i'm kind of reading between the lines here because i think there's some contradiction right is it the evocation of the dark or the words because those aren't necessarily the same thing i think this person, Ocean, uh, once the mall, monumental. I'm kind of blowing past a lot of this to get to the core of the issue. The thing that's unsaid here, I think, is something that captures like the centrality, the enduring difficulty of human life on Earth, the imperfection and bloodiness and fallenness and, you know, uh, antediluvian nature <laughs> of what it means to be a human and walk this life. And so part of that, I think, is trying to strip away the thing you like, what rich people problems. I don't want, that, that's not what they want. They want, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. primal, not in the sense of civilized, but like in, in the sense of core mm-hmm. uh, experiences that go on there. And, you know, that life and death, very uh, corporeal and embedded sense of what it means to be alive and what it means to survive. So I'm picking, I'm going top level world literature too, to look at that in that way. So I'm going with Things Fall Apart, the first of the African Trilly by Chinua Achebe, um, which is set in the 1800s, centers on a, a fictional Igbo warrior, um, I, think, I think you pronounce it a Kunkwo, who is a wealthy and admired leader among his people and tries to resist the encroaching reach of colonial Britain. And it doesn't go great, as you might guess, um, from world history. But to watch him watch what happens, to try to resist it, to use what he has available to him to resist it, and still, from the title and from world history, you might guess it is the watching of the thing fall apart. And in the subsequent books, a continuation of this, what do you do? How do you hold up? How do you deal with a sort of cultural mortality, right? The mortality that we all face with an individual basis, but this is looking at a culture and seeing what's happening to it and fighting for its struggle or fighting of what pieces of it can remain. And it is, I think it's going, you know, it already is one of the great works of world literature. I think it will endure like myth endures to be a central story of a certain kind of experience that that has happened the world over. It's not unique to an individual tribe in Africa with Britain as the antagonist necessarily. But the change 
the monumentalness of change that exists for all of us. And I think that's something that happens with McCarthy too. I think if you, um, if you think of No Country for Old Men, it's a, the world is different now. There's no place for guys like me anymore. Mm. What do you do? How do you stay noble? Do you capitulate? Do you become a savage, meaning without, without any code of all? Or do you hold on to the code that you have? Or do you try to adapt? I think some of these concerns are similar in a, in a different and heightened context. It, this is work in translation. So if you're reading in English, you're not getting Achebe's, you know, particular mastery of, of the language he's writing in, um, but you're getting something. And I think there's a spareness to what comes across in translation that reminds me of some of the planing away of quotidian daily, quotidian life to get to something at the core that still shines through or still remains. It's polished, right? It's not, um, it's not adulterated, it's polished. Um, so that's, things fall apart. And then if you like that, which I can't imagine you're not going to find compelling, then there's a couple more books to get through. So that's um, Things Fall Apart um, by Chinua Achebe. You know, on reading this question, I'm a little bothered by the characterization of Cormac McCarthy as Southern Gothic. Oh. And I'm, I'm getting like, kind of hung up on it because that's not, like Texas is not, whatever. This is not actually relevant. I just wanted to point out that I don't agree with that. Well, well, like the orchard keepers in Tennessee, I mean, you could, depends on how you go, right? Yeah. I, yeah, yeah this yeah. is a thing. Is Texas the South? We could, we could do a podcast series about this, Amanda. I know you have strong feelings. I do. It's not. Okay, yeah. moving on. So I, I entirely went with what has made me feel the way that mm-hmm. I feel when I'm reading Cormac McCarthy. And so my biggest emotional experience of him was The Road. And I think the most similar experience I've had to that is Beloved by Toni mm-hmm. Morrison, um, which, of course, has all the trigger warnings for slavery and harm to children and several others that I can't give you because they spoil the whole book. Is there is there a trigger warning that doesn't apply to Beloved? It's hard to imagine. To Beloved? No. no maybe not. I don't war, but even that, no. Like eventually, that could no. <laughs> there's not. There's not. So I don't even. Do you? Do I even need to like explain the plot of Beloved? So Beloved is about a woman named Setha who was born a slave. She escapes to Ohio, and she's there for you know almost twenty years. And then she is kind of haunted. Not kind of. She's haunted by the ghost of uh, her baby who died without a name. She's buried, and she's got a gravestone that just says Beloved. Um, and then like. One day, these people start showing up from her past, including a man who she was enslaved with in the South. Um, And then, I know. And then a teenage girl who claims to be her daughter, who Mm. is dead. So, like, is this a a ghost? Is this, like, what is it? And I, I feel, you know, I feel like so much of what Cormac McCarthy writes, and also specifically Beloved, but maybe a few other books that Tony Morris has written, you can make an argument for it, are really just, like, American horror. Like, just this... Yeah deeply bone-chillingly horrifying look at um, American existence and they yeah, both don't look do away feel, don't look right. away right yeah, yeah and they both feel I mean obviously beloved is but even Cormac McCarthy I would say is a particularly American kind of horror mm-hmm. even when he's not necessarily writing about Americans but it's got uh this you know, it's beloved's really hard to talk about in comparison to the road because I don't want to spoil yeah the whole conceit of it but this idea of what parents do for their children is the like main you know idea mm. in both of the books and what the parents do in the road or what the dad does in the road and what setha does in beloved 
are completely different yet totally the same thing. It's so hard to explain without spoiling beloved, right. so I don't want to get yeah. it. But yeah. if you're looking for like not just dark intestinality of the world, but dark intestinality, I would say of like the American ethos in the same in a similar way that Cormac McCarthy is considering it often through the lens of family, then I think beloved is a good place yeah. to go for that. And like Godspeed to you in your reading life in twenty. Well, and also <laughs> the other, you know, beloved especially too. It has this the the sense of being. I mean literally hounded, but also figuratively mm-hmm. hounded by the past and the law and the South. And yeah. McCarthy, one of the great scenes of McCarthy in many of the books is being chased across, you know, being hounded oh, yeah. by the judge or the zombies, or the judge in Blood Meridian or Anton Chigurh in, in um, uh, No Country for Old Men. And that, that being chased, that being hounded by being haunted by the inevitable and the ineluctable. And what do you do when you pretty much know that no matter how hard you run, death right. gonna get you? What are you going to do? How are you going to, how do you come to terms with that? Do you come to terms with, are you haunted like beloved or like, like Setha literally is? Do you panic? Do you capitulate? Do you try to keep, you know, some sense of it? Yeah. I think that's really interesting to think about being haunting, right? What do you, what, what is being, who is, who is haunting whom and what do you do in the face of it and why it matters? I have read a review. There's a review on Goodreads. Um, it's one of the first, so you can go read it. Uh, one of the first uh, for Beloved that called it the anti-Proust, hmm. which I thought was really apt. Interesting. And, and can also, I think, apply a little bit to some of Cormac McCarthy's writing too. But like this idea that, you know, Proust is this hazy, nostalgic look at the past yeah. and how it stays with us in this like nice, cozy, cookie kind of way. And Beloved is the literal opposite of that. Like blood horror inescapable yeah yeah you're trying to escape the past right you're trying to escape something but like it's funny because both mccarthy and and morrison overtly i mean she wrote her master's thesis on faulkner are influenced mm-hmm. by faulkner you know kind of the the doyan of 20th century southern terror or whatever you want to call that genre and, you know if faulkner's most famous line isn't the past isn't dead it's not even past it's i don't know past. what it is right? yeah. and that's very much at stake here where Proust is trying to trying the the Proustian Madeline is to recapture something that's gone, and sometimes you want stuff to stay gone, especially right, if it's right. bad, right? If you've been if you've been um, violated, you're not looking to remember. You're looking no. is healing remembering is healing forgetting. I think a lot of that is at stake in Beloved too. So yeah, it's yeah right. I mean it's it's so much like if you it's like looking yeah. at Zeus in its fullest form. Like be be ready. Be ready for the consequences. I don't know. It's like, it's impossible to gird somebody who has never read Beloved for like what's Yeah, happening. yeah. There, you can't, there's no, there's no pull, there's no rolling with that punch. You're going to get no. punched, right? Yeah. Um, good luck. <laughs> yeah, good luck. All right. Our last question is from Angie, who says, I just read Deadly Companions by Dorothy H. Crawford, which deals with the history of microbes and diseases and how it affected history. It got me curious about the world's history before the 1700s. I would love to get some nonfiction recs for books about world history, especially outside of the UK, which I know a bit about already, before the 18th century. All right, Jeff. This one had a moment a while ago, and it's sort of the pre, it's sort of, it is the pre-modern internet sensibility of political reimaginings of like like looking at other so it's hard it's hard to know i haven't read it since i did many years ago 1491 by charles mccann basically is the is my recommendation do you know this book amanda yeah. it's you may have been a little young okay i was like you're a history nerd but you're younger than <laughs> i am so it's hard to, hard for me to know which one of those to lean into and it, it at the time and i think still is shocking in its revelational 
revolutionary. It's not revolutionary. Revolutionary to me, who grew up in Kansas, and as is true in America, but especially true in Kansas in the Plain State, kind of a naive, a willfully naive understanding of what pre-Columbian life looked like in North America and South America too. You know, my conception as a you know growing up and what I was taught is kind of a sparsely populated, quote-unquote, savage peoples that, you know, kind of were on the wrong side of history and isn't that too bad. Well, in 1491, McCann is trying to give a sense of the actual richness and complexity of the human civilizations and what we didn't understand, you know, human societies, just the humans that lived here. And they had big, sprawling, at times monumental civilizations, a wild, a wild diversity, and wild not in terms of primal, but in terms of diffuse and extraordinary and 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 manifold. It reminds me now of like watching these nature documentaries where you see what the coral reefs were like before global warming, <laughs> right? You know, there's there's a sense of like the, the sadness. Uh, and the the trying to understand what was lost and not look away from it. I mean, this is in in many ways the, the twin American horror, right? Of mm-hmm. of what was done to the native peoples in North and South America. And again, it's not an easy read, but it is a sobering and honest one. And you know, I, I think a testament to what a, what books can do that really we don't give space for in other mediums is a sustained, in depth counter and a counter narrative to what's already been established. I think I'd be interested in revisiting it. It became so popular that he did 1493 and like some <laughs> other, you know, like the year after and this kind of stuff. But I don't think, my memories, those don't, aren't as interesting, weren't as interesting to me. But it sounds like 1491 would be a good pick for this topic. All right. I picked Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia by Christina Thompson, which is a history book. I'm like making question marks with my voice, but is also mm. a really I would say that it's more of a historiography than a history book. So Christina Thompson is a historian. She is pretty well known for her per- her first book, which is called uh, Come on Shore and We Will Kill and Eat You All, which is a history of 18th and 19th century New Zealand. And it's also partially a memoir of her marriage. Her husband is Maori. And so Sea People is about how, uh, where did these people come from? You know, like that it's an eternal question of like, how did these people end up on these super far-flung islands that are almost impossible to get to. Like, you could put a boat in the water and never, ever, ever hit any of these islands, ever. (laughs) Like, so how did these people get from whatever mainland they came from to, you know, these far-flung Pacific islands? And, And they've created innumerable cultures. And I started this book thinking that it would be more anthropological than it is. But so it starts in the 1500s, and she's actually telling the story of how Europe or how Europeans stumbled upon these civilizations and then the goofy stories they tell themselves over the hundreds and hundreds of years of of where these people came from until they eventually start getting closer and closer to reality. So you spend most of the book, like up until, you know, the 70s or 80s, 1970s, 1980s, uh, starting in the 1500s, following these European explorers and ship captains and, you know, pretty famous explorers uh it's like, is it magellan being like well geez they must have been picked up by a hurricane and i mean it's that kind right, of stuff right, right. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah or like cook being like um 
there was a bridge to some, I don't, you know, or like just these, just nonsense. <laughs> Having to invent plate tectonics right. to, to understand <laughs> Well, there's it, also like. a lot of really interesting, well, interesting to me, I guess, but like religious ideas about yeah, like, you right. know, they, I don't know, they're fallen angels somehow or like whatever. And the, the evolution of kind of Western civilization's ideas of of how to explain where a people came from who you cannot communicate with, you know, off the jump, who yeah. whose um, customs and mores you don't understand, especially... And has knowledge ways that are outside of your understanding. That right? you yeah. don't get, yeah. exactly, yeah. yes. And like, so, they, you know, the explanation, the Occam's Razor explanation, of course, is that they're very talented. God. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. God, yeah. yeah. Well, I'll, no, I mean, like, from from our perspective, the Occam's Razor oh, answer oh, oh. is that like these are very talented navigators, you know, mm. who whatever who went exploring just like the Europeans did to see what they could see and saw what they saw, you know. But the Europeans were incapable of giving people who seemed to them so quote primitive, you know, that level of finite skill or like yeah, those, right. so they invented the stories you tell to yourself exactly. when you're that racist to maintain your own superiority. Get nutty, right? Yeah. Get nutty. And like, yeah, what else yeah. do you have to tell yourself to justify your colonization mm-hmm. and your, you know, several islands where they just wiped the people out? Like all of it. it's just a fascinating. You do so. You do eventually get to the answers that modern anthropologists accept as you know where these people came from um, and their their uh, travel routes from mainland Asia down into the Polynesian islands. Um, but the journey there is. Nutty. <laughs> it's quite nutty. It's quite nutty. Um, I should have. I wish I would have known. When we, uh, I think probably a lot of people have the experience that my kids and I did. When we saw Moana and they were talking. Mm-hmm. You know, like that was my first. Or like, how did you know? Like they put their hand in the water. To, is that? I should have. I wish I would have found this. We did our research, and it still kind of boggles my mind. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's my latent racism or whatever. It's like really that that worked. That you know <laughs> that was possible. Still, still uh, strains. I, I guess the the right word is it's amazing, right? It's amazing yeah. in its own way to think about what was possible and what they and what they figured out. Yeah. The early twentieth century, not early, like the mid twentieth century, like the fifties and sixties, anthropologists who go on these quests, like yeah. putting boats in the water off Hawaii to prove that there's literally no way you could ever navigate to these other islands, and like it must have been some miracle, or they hitched a ride from somebody else, or whatever. Like the lengths that white academics went to, yeah. To make it way more complicated than like they they put their hand in the water, you know, like then someone should do a book about this of like stuff you can't believe people actually did because you're a racist, like <laughs> like the pyramids or like um, the oral traditions, right? Like there's no way Persians memorized the Iliad and said it out loud. It was like well, actually, yeah, yeah, <laughs> actually, they did, free your right? mind, man, free your mind, man. Like they actually did get that's from a big part. The Philippines of this also. to Hawaii, yeah, the oral traditions yeah. a big part of this too because the that's how they counted their how many generations they'd been on an island was through oh. ancestral um, oral stories about like this person. It's very Old Testament. This person beget that person yeah, who begats, begat that. It's the begats. The begats. It's the Polynesian yeah. begats. But of course, white people are mm. like, only we can have a begat that makes any kind of logical <laughs> If they sense. didn't have paper, they didn't know anything. They're <laughs> right. lucky they could eat conch. Um, right, yeah. Anyway, so that's Sea People Fascinating. by Christina Thompson. And that- I'm going to read that one. Is our show. It's really good to listen to on audio. Thank you so much to our audio editor, Jen Zink. Thank you for listening. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Um, thank you to our sponsors. You can find us on social media. I'm, well, kind of. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. Jeff, are you anywhere? Are you on social media? I'm there, but don't follow yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go listen to the Book Riot podcast. <laughs> there you go. I'm over there. And we will be back. When will we be back? Next week. Yeah, for our last show of the year. <laughs>